So let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. If you have an analog Bible, you can open it to Mark chapter 9. You can navigate on your modern device. And we're going to look at verses 14 through 29 this morning. If you're with us for the first time or new to Calvary, we study through books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. The topic of our study this morning, Jesus commands a deaf and dumb spirit to come out of a young boy. The title of our message, Deaf and Dumber, to have a word of prayer. <laughs> Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to be here together in a place where you've promised you will manifest your presence in a special, powerful way. We know that the Holy Spirit is our ultimate teacher. We know that he is within us, Lord, if we are born again, that he's here with us as well, Lord, as we've gathered together. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The Rocky movie franchise is to borrow lyrics from the theme song, Getting Strong Now, Flying High Now. Do you realize that the first Rocky film was released all the way back in 1976 when I was just two years old? <laughs> Fast forward to 2015 and you've got Creed, the story of Apollo Creed's illegitimate son convincing Rocky Balboa to train him. Worldwide, the film has grossed $175 million. A sequel is already being planned. In the first film of the franchise, Apollo Creed knew for sure that he would win his fight against Rocky Balboa. And what's more, Rocky knew that Apollo would win as well. He tells his girlfriend, Adrian, that he knows he can't win. And then he says, all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. Well, that's what he said. No, no, that's, no, please. I'm gonna sing a little later, so you save it for that. Now, <laughs> yeah. You know the story, Rocky is outmatched, but he manages to knock down the overconfident champ. A grueling, punishing fight ensues. Rocky goes the distance, but as predicted, Apollo Creed gets the victory. As Christians, one of the first words we learn to love is the word victory. We're taught correctly that on the cross, Jesus was and is victorious over sin, death, and the devil, and that his victory means that we have victory. Since that's true, why do we get knocked down so much? Why do we hit the mat so hard when we do? Well, victory is hard won, that's why. It's ours, but it doesn't come without a fight. We know from reading the New Testament that the devil, although defeated, will go the distance. He'll be throwing punches right up until Jesus returns at his second coming when the Lord orders him bound and incarcerated for a thousand years. He'll fight on once he's released from that prison only to be finally and utterly defeated when he and his followers are cast alive into the lake of fire that has been prepared for their everlasting conscious torment. In our text, the nine disciples whom Jesus had not taken with him up the Mount of Transfiguration have a bout with the devil. Victorious over him in the past, this time they hit the mat hard when they are unable to cast out a particularly nasty demon from a young boy. It gave Jesus an opportunity to teach a lesson about victory that it is both hard fought and hard sought. 
I'll organize my thoughts around those two points. Number one, your spiritual victory is hard, for, hard fought excuse me, as we await the return of Jesus. And number two, your spiritual victory is hard sought as we await the return of Jesus. In verses 14 through 27, we're gonna see the hard fighting that takes place. Listen to this quote regarding the end of World War II in the Pacific Theater. Naval superiority for the Allies was assured by victory over the Japanese fleet at Leyte Gulf, while giant B-29 bombers started pounding targets in Japan itself. Nevertheless, there was bitter fighting from island to island and through the jungles of Burma against an enemy that refused to surrender until the horror of the atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We were victorious over a defeated foe, but the enemy fought on until a final blow was delivered. Likewise, as Christians, we are victorious over a defeated foe, the devil, but he fights on until the final blow will be delivered. The events in our text give us a rare opportunity to explore and explain the fight we find ourselves in against defeated enemies who refuse to yield until they must. And so let's pick up the story in verses 14 and 15. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. Jesus was returning with Peter, James, and John from the mountain upon which he had appeared to them transfigured along with Elijah and Moses. The nine disciples he had left in charge of the ministry were being harassed by a group of scribes. As soon as the great multitude saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed. An alternate translation is that they were surprised to see him. They weren't expecting him to show up for some reason, but now that he was back, they welcomed him gladly. Now, I don't want to drift into any kind of mysticism, but I think sometimes when we gather together, we're not really expecting that Jesus is going to show up, and we're almost surprised if he does. Jesus promised he'd be among his gathered church. He is here. Do you remember that old song? We I mean, this is an old song. He is here, he is here. Did anybody remember that song? You might in a minute, right? You want me to sing it? Of course you want me to sing it, right? Okay, it goes like this. He is here, he is here, and he wants to work a wonder. He is here, he is here, as we've gathered in his name. Anybody remember that at all? It's a real song. Yeah, you remember it? God bless you, sister. Free coffee for you. Man. You know, for a guy born in 1974, I shouldn't really know that, but... I'd say, if he's going to lie about his age, what about the word of God? <laughs> Calvary pastor lies in pulpit. The blogs are going to go crazy tomorrow. I sense, uh, let's see, here, where are we? In verse 16. Don't distract me like that. And he asked the, he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Now, I sense a hint of protection in Jesus' voice. He loves his guys. He knows that whatever they might be discussing, he knew that the scribes were non-believers and they were insincere. He knew that their only purpose in discussing anything with his disciples was to befuddle them or to belittle them. We've all been there. Someone or maybe even several someones at once are peppering you with questions or complaints about Jesus and about the gospel. They're not sincere questions. It's just an effort to make you look dumb. 
just as jealous as he was over his disciples, Jesus is jealous over you. And I suggest that if you refuse to get stumbled by their criticism and remain humble, Jesus will use you in their lives. Your example while being berated can be as powerful as your explanations. It's not always about how much we know. And we should know as much as we can. We should be ready to give an answer to every man of the hope that is in us. But it's not always about how much you know. Do you ever come away from a conversation with a non-believer and think, man, if I only had all the answers or these particular answers? Well, you know who did have a lot of answers is the Apostle Paul, a brilliant scholar with unassailable logic as well as enjoying the anointing of God, yet even he was ridiculed on Mars Hill by the philosophers there. And so uh, you're in good company if people are ridiculing you. And the, the point is, Handle it like a Christian because those people will come someday. They'll find you when they have a real need in their life because they'll see a real person standing with you and that person is Jesus Christ. Verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, he becomes rigid. I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. They could not. So that was what they were disputing. The disciples were unable to deal with this demon. The scribes seized upon their failure to undermine the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notwithstanding that the scribes had never lifted a finger to help this young boy or his father, they took opportunity to ridicule the Lord and his disciples. Now, even without the scribes' criticism, I'm sure it troubled the disciples. Jesus had given them power over demons. What happened? Well, let's look away from the disciples for just a moment. We'll find out what happened. Let's look at the boy. This is severe suffering. In a moment, the father will further describe his son's condition, and we will gasp at how awful it was. It's one of the worst cases in Scripture. In Jesus' temporary absence, his disciples seemed helpless against the evil that was manifested in the world. It's the same today. God seems absent and his followers seem helpless in the face of mounting evil. God is not absent. We are not helpless. We'll talk more about that later. But still, the problem of evil stumbles non-believers. It is a great obstacle for them, especially when the evil or the pain strikes close to home. Verse 19, he answered him and said, oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, who was Jesus calling faithless? It seems important. The Greek word is used elsewhere in the New Testament only of non-believers. It doesn't make sense to me that this would be the only use of the word to describe believers. I think Jesus had the scribes in mind. He wouldn't be with them much longer. He wouldn't need to bear with them. He was going to his death, then to heaven. On the other hand, he'd be with his disciples always, and he would bear with them and with us through all of our failures. I'm not trying to ignore an important exhortation, but this one probably isn't for us. Now, it might be for you if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. How long do you have before it's too late to make a decision to repent and to turn to God from your sin? You can't answer that question because you don't know. None of us knows when we're going to die. We could live to a great old age and die peacefully in our beds, in our sleep, or something tragic could happen imminently in our lives. If you're not a believer, you're in a precarious place. 
What you do know is that you have an appointment with death and after that there is no further opportunity to be saved. So if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher, is also an evangelist and he is freeing your will to hear the gospel, the good news that you can be saved, have your sins forgiven and live forever and that's the business that you can transact with God today because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, then they brought uh, him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. Put on your parent hat for a moment. What if this were your boy? This is not a sterile classroom discussion about the presence of evil in the world or about why God allows suffering. This is a pain that you live with every minute of every day. The boy seemed to get worse and worse before he is healed and the demon is cast out. It becomes a picture for us of the age in which we live. This demon is typical of the will of the devil and his highly organized forces to fight on even though defeated. I mean, the demon knew his time of possessing this boy was up. He knew that Jesus would command him to come out of the boy, but he gave it his all in defeat. This is what we can expect until we are with Jesus. The disciples were getting a glimpse of the church age in which the devil would be going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Verse 21, so he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Jesus wasn't questioning the dad for purposes of making a diagnosis or for suggesting some course of treatment. He wasn't stalling for time, trying to figure out what to do. No, his question, I think, is full of compassion. It acknowledges the absolute horror of this boy's condition and the pain his father must have endured watching his son. God is no idle bystander to our pain and suffering. He is touched by it all in all points as we are. God the Father looked on as his only begotten son was killed. If you think that knowing that he was going to raise Jesus from the dead made the cross an easy thing, well then you're just wrong. From childhood, this young boy had been afflicted. The suffering of children really gets to us. It evokes more raw emotion than just about anything. What parent hasn't wanted to trade places with their child in even the most minor pain. It's part of the unspoken definition of being a parent that you would be willing in a moment to trade places with your child and take upon yourself any of their pain. And so this is an incredible suffering and it's, it's even worse than we've read so far when we get to the end and see some of the other things that happened in this boy's life. Here it goes, verse 22. And often he is thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, among those who portray themselves as experts on demons and demonic possession, there's a belief that demons in general have some kind of desire or need to inhabit human bodies. To put it in contemporary terms, they say that demons are jonesing to take on flesh and that they're just waiting to possess people and that there's probably a lot more people possessed than we realize. Well, that's just silly. This demon kept trying to kill his host. He wanted to destroy this young boy. He didn't get in there and say, hey, this is pretty cool. I love it in here. I'll just do a few demon things and hang out. He said, no, hey, here's some water. Let's drown this kid. Here's a fire we can jump into. And so that's just wrong. We've taken the position 
it's a biblical position, I might add, that the presence of Jesus on the earth was countered by the devil by a demonic invasion upon first century Israel in a way that we just don't see today now that Jesus has ascended to heaven. Don't get me wrong, demonic possession is real, it still happens, it's just not rampant. Some people would have you believe that because we're not looking for it, we're not seeing it. Well, these have to be pretty lousy demons if they're not manifesting themselves in any way. I mean, the demons in the Bible, when Jesus was on the earth, they're pretty grotesque. I mean, take this young boy, this mute spirit, being thrown into the water, being thrown into the fire. The demoniac of Gadara, running around naked, breaking chains, growling at people. And yet people would have you believe that the person sitting next to you and the bus secretly is demon-possessed and you need to cast the demon out. Hey, listen, demons can still possess people, but it's not an invasion like it was in the first century. And, and one big thing, as I've told you before, and I think you would concur, the devil's moved on to some really better strategies. He's kept pace with the human race and he's ahead of us and he's got things coming down the pike that we haven't even planned for yet. Uh, just in the area of the digital world in which we live. I was following a discussion on Facebook the other day about parents struggling with their children having cell phones and having access to the internet. And you know what? You'd better struggle with that because there's nothing that has the more potential for evil than the internet in terms of just what takes place when you're not looking over somebody's shoulder. And so the devil, he doesn't need to possess your children and throw them into the fire. He just needs to lead them to the next website. And it's far more effective in destroying lives and destroying families than demonic possession. Now, something else demon hunters like to say, I've told you about this before too, they say that you must learn a demon's name before you could cast it out. And, and it's, you know, some, to some people that makes sense. But if you're a demon, you could counter that by saying, hey, let's make this kid mute. And then they can ask me all day what my name is and I can't answer. And so I guess what I'm pointing out is that we don't deal with demons based on superstition and formula. If you encounter things demonic, demonic possession, that kind of thing, you have the authority of Jesus Christ because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you in terms of how to deal with it. Now, the father of this boy sounds like he'd lost faith in Jesus' ability to cast out demons. That makes sense to me because his disciples had failed him. After all, Jesus had previously conferred upon the 12 power to cast out demons, and everywhere they went, the demons obeyed them. Since they failed in this case, and since their power came from Jesus, maybe it was because Jesus had lost his mojo. Maybe Jesus couldn't cast out demons anymore either. And Jesus said to him in verse 23, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. I need to be very, very careful here. Some read this as if Jesus just said, if you have enough faith, you can receive anything you ask for. Faith is certainly required at all times. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But Jesus didn't say anything is possible. He said all things are possible. That's a lot of things for sure, but most of them you're gonna find are spiritual and not physical. All things, I think, refers to all the things that God has promised you or provided for you. 
In Ephesians, they are called all spiritual blessings in Christ. So in your suffering, you can and should ask God to heal you, but he may tell you that all you really need from him is sufficient grace to go on enduring your suffering. And so you see there's a big difference between anything and all things. So I ask for a healing. Is that anything that I can get from God? Well, there are a bunch of faith healers in the world that will tell you that's true and that if you just had enough faith, you'd never be sick in the first place. And if you did get sick, you could confess that you were well and you would be well. Now, this stumbles a lot of people, but it shouldn't because you ought to be able to just look around and think, that's just not true. The faith healers get sick, they die. Well, they do. They're not dismissing their spirit. Not a one of them has ever said, you know, I'm done preaching, my time is done, I'm committing my spirit to the Lord. They teach that you can do that, but none of them ever does that. They just die because what they're teaching is false. Jesus didn't say you can get anything. He said you can get all things. When you read the New Testament, you find guys like Paul. Now, there's a guy I'd like to follow rather than some of these faith teachers. They would say to Paul, Paul, you don't have enough faith. You shouldn't be in all these shipwrecks. You shouldn't be getting beat up. You shouldn't be imprisoned. You, you should just need to have faith, brother, to which Paul would punch him in the face <laughs> and then ask for forgiveness later. But do you understand what I'm saying? So don't be stumbled by this. Does God heal today? Absolutely. Should you pray for healing? Absolutely. Should you keep praying for healing? Absolutely. In the meantime, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places belong to you. Peace that passes all understanding. A joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. These are the things that manifest Christ in the generation in which we live. And so that's what we're talking about. All things are better than anything we might ask for. We would almost always settle for things that are merely physical, that are merely temporary, and we would miss those things that are spiritual that prepare us for eternity. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I wanna humbly suggest to you that this is always true of each of us at any time in our Christian life. We certainly believe, and on that basis, we are justified by God's grace. But the very fact that we must grow seems to indicate we have a certain amount of unbelief that needs to be overcome as we walk with Jesus through our lives. I'm not talking about a non-belief, I'm not talking about an apostasy where you're turning away from God. I'm talking about the, the, the concern that you have that God's not going to come through for you in the situation that you're in, even though he's been faithful in the past. I'm talking about finding it strange when you fall into trials. Be, in, in reality, you should think, where's my next trial? Because that's what the Lord has promised us. The father believed that the Lord could heal his boy that's why he had come in the first place. But his belief had been shaken by the failure of the disciples, and he admitted it. If I'm being honest, throughout my entire Christian walk of some 37 years, I've always had something that I was having a hard time believing God for. I've got a few of those things right now. Things that I just sit and I say, Lord, I know you've always been faithful. I know you are faithful. I know you can't not be faithful. It's impossible. 
because you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. But this thing that I'm facing right now, this thing that I'm in, this thing that's happening, why do you allow it? How is it gonna resolve itself? I can see no way out of this. And it might last a day or a decade. And there's a struggle. And if you're honest, you have those struggles too. You're having them right now. And that's why we can say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Whatever you're going through, unbelief like that can creep in, and when it does, don't hesitate to admit it and to pray this prayer in your own words. The hard part is God uh, is waiting upon the Lord for him to break through. He always does, uh, but it's so hard. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him, and enter into him no more. Now, Mark writes this as though the crowd's coming interrupted Jesus. Because they were approaching, he quickly cast out the demon so that it wouldn't become a circus. But Jesus might not have been done talking to this father. And so the feeling I get here is that here comes the crowd, so I have to get this done right now. I have to cut this short and deal with it right now. We need to be sensitive to the Lord wanting to minister to people, especially when Christians have gathered together. It's one reason why we try to minimize distractions in our meetings. A precious spiritual moment can be stolen away from someone by interruptions. Now, any group of people, you can't minimize every interruption. And some people are way uh, uh, you know, on, on one end of the spectrum. You sneezed, get out of here. I see you swallowing, get out of here. You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, on the other end, there's like, hey, bring everybody in. Put the babies on the ground in the front row. Ah, oh, yeah, suffer the little children to come unto me. And so, so there's a balance in all that. But let me give you a better example of what I'm talking about. When I was a young Christian, we used to attend evangelistic concerts at a place called Rain Cross Square in Riverside where Greg Laurie would preach the gospel. They'd have a, a band would play, and then he'd come out and preach the gospel. So the band's playing, and then as soon as the band was done and Pastor Greg would come on stage to pre the gospel, many of the Christians would get up and leave the arena because they didn't need the gospel because they were saved, they were there for the music. And it prompted Greg to have to start saying, if you're a Christian, please don't leave because you're gonna distract the preaching of the gospel Stay and pray that the Lord would work in the hearts of people, and still some people left. And, but that's the kind of a thing, because you know, that's a moment when the gospel's being preached, there's a battle going on in the human heart. The spirit is freeing the will of a person to hear the gospel so that they can make a decision for Jesus Christ, and you know that there's gonna be opposition from the flesh and from the devil against that. And so one thing you can do is at least minimize distraction so that you're not thinking, uh, this enormous guy wants to walk in front of me. So, well, what did you just say? Who died on the cross? I don't know what that guy's talking about. And then it's gone for that moment. And so it's, it can be very important to minimize distractions. We don't go crazy about it, but just think about it. And that's why we don't like it when people call attention to themselves in meetings and things like that because it's really about Jesus and what he wants to do in each individual heart. So just be sensitive. Now here we learn that this boy was deaf as well as dumb. This just keeps getting worse and worse. This is a very extreme case, one of the worst cases in scripture. 
Not for Jesus, though. There is no extremity of suffering beyond his ability to deal with it. Verse 26, then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him and he became as one dead so that many said, he's dead. Uh, This was quite a defiant demon. He fought hard to the end. I'm belaboring it, but that's one of the major points this episode is hammering home. We live in between the first and second comings of Jesus to the earth. Our defeated foe is defiant and fighting as hard as he can until the very end. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Mark doesn't need to tell you that the boy was completely healed inside and out. Do you doubt any of the following, that he could hear perfectly, that he could talk articulately, that his burns from having been thrown into fires were healed, and that his skin was like that of a baby's skin? You don't doubt that for a moment. You know that. Mark doesn't have to point that out. He doesn't have to give you an inventory because you know that when Jesus heals, he heals completely. What about psychologically? Do you think that this boy suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder? Do you think he was afraid of water on account of the many attempts the demon had made to drown him? I'd say no to those and other questions like it because Jesus heals to the uttermost. Now hear me, I'm not saying that for you, everything in your life is miraculously healed when you come to the Lord or that you are miraculously healed even now. Some of you, some of us, are struggling with issues, some psychological and mental. What I am saying is that your healing will come from the Lord. He is the great physician, and I dare say it for fear of being misunderstood, but Jesus is not just your great physician, he's your great psychologist too. Everything you need for life and godliness will come from Jesus. And so don't leave here with a burden thinking, oh, Gene said that there shouldn't be anything wrong with me. I shouldn't be waking up in the middle of the night in cold sweats. I am saying that your healing will come from the Lord as you seek the Lord. And many times people aren't being healed uh, because they're seeking healing from another source. They're not willing to wait upon the Lord or to struggle with the Lord or learn from the Lord. And they go off looking for uh, these other remedies that um, are available that are in many cases cultic or demonic. Now there is evil in the world and what's more, it is organized and powerful. It exists because Adam and Eve representing us sinned in the Garden of Eden. Why does it endure? It endures because God's plan to overcome it takes time because he is dealing with cosmic issues of atonement and redemption along with the complications of the human heart and the free will of men. And if you don't think that's a complicated issue, you come up with a plan of salvation. This is the only plan and it involves God coming as a man into our experience and it's taken the thousands of years that it's taken to come to fruition. Now, before you object to the it takes time argument, consider this. God's plan is essentially a rescue mission. Some rescues take more time than others. And God's rescue of the human race takes more time. In 2010, the world was gripped by the Chilean mining accident in which 33 men were trapped 2,300 feet below the surface with all of the best efforts and equipment from all around the world. It still took 69 days to rescue them. 
69 days, that was a long rescue. It wasn't just running into a burning building and bringing out a survivor. It took 69 days. Now, God's rescue of the human race is a little bit like that, only there's a further twist. Of the 33 Chilean miners, not one of them refused to be rescued. Not one of them determined to stay trapped in the dark. When miner number 32 came up, he didn't say, that's it. I talked to Juan, he wants to stay in the mine. Now that the 32 of us are out, there's plenty of food for him. His eyes have accustomed to the darkness. He loves it down there. The stuffy air, nothing to do, the trapped feeling, the isolation, he absolutely loves it. Pull the plug on this rescue. No, no one said that. No one in their right mind would say that. If anyone said that, you'd go down after them anyway because you know they're crazy. Yet that is exactly the decision every day of multiplied millions of people. God has saved them by the cross of Jesus Christ. He is the savior of how many men? All men, the Bible says, especially those who believe. But rather than be rescued, they prefer to live in the darkness trapped by their sin. It's ridiculous to think a minor would do that. How much more that a human being would do that when it comes to eternal life. And so God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that they would come to know him. And so not only did it take time for Jesus to manifest himself as God in human flesh and die for the sins of the world, but God is now also long-suffering, waiting for people to come to know him because once your time is through to make that decision, there's no second chance. And eternity, to be silly, you know, is a long, long time. And so God waits in his long suffering. And so yes, it's true, the devil and his demons refuse to surrender, but the bigger problem is that non-believers refuse to surrender to Jesus Christ. Our part is to draw from all things that are promised us and provided for us to further the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now in verses 28 and 29, we see that our victory is hard sought. We have the same burning question that the disciples had. It's asked and answered in these two verses. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And so he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. I think that what Jesus says here is so simple that we overlook it and miss its impact. First, let's talk about what he was not saying. I don't believe he was saying that if you encounter an especially bad demon, you need to go off for a time of prayer and fasting and then return and cast it out. The example Jesus left us was that he was always ready to fight. He was praying and fasting all the time and when he encountered anything, it was behind him, not ahead of him. Do you understand what I mean? He'd already done what he tells them needs to be done. The Lord is talking about a lifestyle that includes prayer and fasting regardless any specific trials or tragedies. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to call for a fast with prayer for certain things. We see this occasionally in the scriptures. We should probably be calling for a fast and prayer for the upcoming election because we're at a, a real crisis point in the history of our nation, and there's nothing wrong with that. But by far, the most important thing to take away from Jesus' comments are that we be spiritually disciplined with prayer and fasting on that list. Let's be brutally honest. 
If we were to take a survey and ask, do you pray and fast often, most of us would answer no. Well, I'd fudge a little bit first and say, uh, describe often. <laughs> and then all they'd have to say is, well, ever? Oh yeah, ever, sure. Back in the 80s, I think I did once, you know, that kind of a thing. And so let's just be honest, we're probably not a big group of fasters. The conclusion from we, that we draw from our lack of prayer and fasting from this passage is that we're not as ready as we need to be to fight. It's at least one of the reasons we get knocked down and hit the mat so hard when we do. It's the Apollo Creed syndrome of knowing we're going to win so we don't really train as hard anymore. It would seem from Jesus' comments that even though he had conferred upon the 12 the ability to cast out demons, they needed to remain disciplined. When Jesus said, hey, I'm giving you the ability to cast out demons, it wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't like a, a, a magic bullet. That ability came with the understanding that they would continue to walk with him and grow in him. Uh, and when they didn't, they faced obstacles that they couldn't overcome. The ability to cast out demons wasn't theirs once he gave it to them. It was still his. Anything and everything they did, they did through him. And so prayer and fasting communicates that understanding that we're dependent upon the Lord. Whatever he has given us or tasked us with, we remain totally dependent upon him to empower us. And there's nothing like prayer and especially prayer and fasting to communicate to the Lord, Lord, I know that this comes only from you and I depend upon you. We can go through the motions of our Christian walk, especially here in the relative safety of our great nation, without having any real anointing from God. We can teach the Bible. We can, you know, be elders and deacons in the church. We can teach Sunday school. We can be on missions trip. We can do a lot and not really be anointed to do it, not really be led or filled with the Holy Spirit. We love grace so much that we think it's incompatible with spiritual discipline. It's not. When you mention being disciplined, a lot of you know, people get their hackles up, whatever hackles are. I've, I don't know if I've ever had mine up, but it's an expression. And it's like, hey, wait a minute, I'm under grace. You can't tell me I have to pray and fast. You can't tell me I have to do these other things. Grace, that's legalism and I'm under grace. Okay, you don't have to do anything. Do you know what? You're gonna hit the mat hard and you're gonna bounce when you do. And you're gonna be out for an eight count at least before you get up groggy and get hit again and again and again. So how's that for your grace, buddy? You wanna go down in grace or you wanna stand up in God's grace and discipline? There's nothing about spiritual discipline that is contrary to grace. We need to get back to the basic disciplines of the Christian life. That's all Jesus is saying here. That's why we overlook it. We tend to start thinking about the, the demon and how vicious this particular demon was, but it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with the disciples getting back to the basic disciplines of the Christian life. What are they? Prayer, reading the word, especially devotionally. And what I mean by that is reading the word in a way that you're having a communication and a conversation with the Lord gathering together as believers, sharing your faith, giving to the work of the Lord, and fasting. Consider that a checklist of six activities and accept the challenge this morning of exercising yourself spiritually in any and all in which you might be deficient. In baseball, commentators talk about a five-tool player. 
The ideal position player excels at hitting for average, hitting for power, at base running, at throwing, and fielding. Think Willie Mays. He may not be the top one on every list, but he's in the top three. He could do everything on a baseball field. He excelled in all five of those areas. He wasn't just a power hitter. He wasn't just a base runner. Uh, he wasn't just a pinch hitter, those kinds. You know, there are role players like that, but he was, he was a five-tool player. We're to work on being six-tool Christians, not settling for one or two or even four or five disciplines. Hey, that's great if you, you know, do some of those things all the time. If you're, it's great if you gather with the church whenever the church gathers. It's great if you give to the work of the Lord, but there's four other things that need to take place. It's great if you're praying and fasting, but you need to be in the Word. We need to be in all six of those areas and the Lord is the one who can just gently come up to us like in a minute when we're praying and say, hey, Gene, you know, you got a nice laugh there out of that fasting thing, but when do you think you might give up lunch? I know how much you like to eat. I've, you know, Jesus follows my Facebook too. <laughs> and he sees me at In-N-Out. I've, I've quit posting because it's a little bit weird how often I'm there. <laughs> Although I have branched out lately. I ate at Mike's the other day, the new Mike's, and I highly recommend it. And uh, I recommend just about anything for lunch. Let's, let's just eat. And so, you know, the Lord wants to talk to each one of us. And maybe this is a day that you want to come forward finally and say, hey, I want, to, I want prayer because I'm a one-tool Christian. I'm a three-tool Christian. I'm a five-tool Christian, and the Lord is ministering to my heart that this is an area that I need to bolster up. I don't want to hit the mat so hard. In fact, I'm down on the mat right now. I came in knocked out, and now I see that I can get up and continue in this fight. Jesus said, this kind can come out. That's a big statement. I think it applies beyond the casting out of that demon. What Jesus was saying in general is that you can prevail against whatever you encounter. So they said, how come we couldn't cast out the demon? Jesus said, well, this kind can come out. Put anything else in there. Lord, how come I don't have victory in this area? Jesus says, well, you can have victory. But here's what you need to do. You need, in, in their case, these guys needed prayer and fasting. They saw the Lord do it all the time, but they didn't do it. We know they didn't spend a lot of time in prayer because in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was all night in prayer, what were they doing? They were sleeping. They were sawing logs. And Jesus kept asking them, hey, would you guys please pray with me? I wonder how many times they kicked themselves after that and said, man, why didn't we stay up? Why didn't we have some coffee or something, you know? Put a pot on and let's stay up with Jesus. That would have been so incredible to have prayed with the Lord all that night, but instead they slept. And so this was an area Jesus, you know, he picked on and he said, hey guys, yeah, I gave you power over demons. You weren't able to cast this one out because you're not really praying and fasting. You're taking it for granted. It's the Apollo Creed syndrome. You know you're gonna win and so you've quit training. All you need to really do is follow hard after Jesus. Victory is assured, but it is to be hard sought in a personal relationship with the Lord. And really, in the end, it's your closeness with Jesus that is your victory at all times, no matter what is happening in your world or in the world. Let's pray.